So now we, uh, we look at 1 Thessalonians 5, where I get to talk with you about what the Bible says about how you guys are to treat people like me, which is not awkward at all, <laughs> right? It's like the first time you read, honor your father and mother to your kids. It, it just feels a little strange. It's like the first time you're leading a team at work and they were colleagues and now they report to you. It's, it's, just, it's just really, really very, very awkward. And so I wanna acknowledge that. Um, but I also want to be faithful to show you what God's word says. And that's ultimately what this is about. It's about what God's word says, not what I say, okay? That's what it's always about here. It's what God's word says, not what I say. And so he's gonna talk to us about the church as the family of God. He says in verse 12, we ask you brothers. Now that word brothers is better translated siblings. It means brothers and sisters. He's talking about the church as the family of God, which is a really interesting way to think about the church, that the church is not a club to join, that the church is not an organization, though it is organized. The church is the family. And in, in calling it a family, he reminds us that God is our father. And God is our father who loved us and sent Jesus, our brother, to die on the cross for our sin so that those who had rebelled against dad could be brought home, who could be brought home to be forgiven, could be brought home to be accepted in the family, could be brought home to be made part of God's family in the church. And so as we are made God's family, we are made family with one another. That's what the church is. It's the family of God. And these Christians in Thessalonica had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had repented of sin. They had returned to Christ, received forgiveness, received the acceptance that comes through faith in him. And they were made family. And what we're going to see today is there are two things that Paul calls the family of God to in this passage. We're going to see how we are to treat leaders in the family of God. And then we're going to see how we're to treat one another in the family of God. So this passage assumes that you are part of the family of God. And so if you are part of the family, then listen up. Maybe you're a visitor. Maybe you're from out of town. And this is going to be about your pastor somewhere else. Many of you are from here. And this is going to be about our pastors here. It's also going to be about how we treat one another. Those are the two things we're going to See, so we're gonna start with how we treat leaders. Look at verse 12. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And so here in this passage, he's talking to them about how they are to treat a group of people. Now, they are... Brothers and sisters, with, they are brothers and sisters to these leaders. So there's an equality in the family and there's a distinction in roles. So elders are not more important, they're not better, but there is a distinction in their roles in the family. And he tells them, he reminds them that they're family, he reminds them that they're brothers and sisters, and then he talks about what these leaders do and who these leaders are. And he says first in verse 12, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in 
the Lord. Now, that term uh, over you is a term that's used throughout the New Testament to refer to the work of elders and pastors. And that word is used interchangeably in the New Testament. So I'm gonna bounce back and forth between the terms elders and pastors. Same group of leaders, same thing in the New Testament. And I'll use it um, interchangeably here. But he speaks of those who labor among you. Now, I know, I know, pastors only work one day a week and it involves air conditioning and no heavy lifting. I, I get that, okay? Uh, Tom Rainer did a study where he took 15 things that pastors typically do. He sent this out to, uh, to do a survey of church members and asking how many hours or how long should pastors give to these things. And once he got all the data back, it found that church members believed that pastors should work about 115 hours a week, okay? That's that's how they understood what they should give, the kind of time they should give to what they were called to do. Now, um, pastors pastors labor, um, and I wanna share some things with you, uh, not to gain sympathy, but so that you will understand. I signed up for this. I'm not looking for any pity or sympathy or anything in what I'm about to say. I just want you to understand. When it says pastors labor among you, that word labor is not about long hours. It's about emotional toil. Pastors carry emotional weight. That's what the word means. It's used again in Colossians 4 about Epaphras, that he worked hard among you. Pastors carry external emotional weight. They care for souls. They, they are concerned also about the organizational parts of ministry. And they have to do that part in a way that also sounds like they do the first part. Pastors carry internal emotional weight. They deal with their own internal sin and idolatry. They deal with the expectations of others. This, this constant challenge of pleasing people or pleasing God. They deal with feedback from people who think they can say just about anything they want to us. They deal with the realities that our families face because of our job. Cheryl signed up for this. My kids did not. And all of this weight on top of the task of preaching, leading, caring, praying, all while knowing I'll stand before God for everything I do. A few weeks ago, I was preaching while medicated, which is never wise, okay? <laughs> Nathan, was, Nathan was sick too. He was on medication. We joked about it after. I said, yeah, but you were just singing songs that were written by somebody else. Like, I'm, I'm gonna stand before God for everything I said while on Sudafed. <laughs> Pastors carry an emotional weight. And there, there are ways that Paul describes this in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy, he talks about those in ministry as an athlete. Think about an athlete. They train and train and train and train. Most of their work largely unseen for just a few moments in front of people. He also describes pastors or those in ministry as a farmer who work and work and work, tilling soil, planting seed, guarding from pests and enemies. And then after all that work, a farmer is powerless to make it rain. Powerless to make anything grow. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul makes this long list of hardship and pain being robbed, tortured, adrift at sea, insomnia. And then at the end, his mic drop moment, he says, and apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. (laughs) The capstone of his difficulty in life is the anxiety that comes from pastoral ministry. That's what he's saying. 
Pastors labor. They carry weight. Now, to be sure, they carry it differently. The way I carry weight is different from the way the other pastors at our church carry weight, different from the way other pastors in the world carry weight, but all of us carry weight in pastoral ministry. This is one of the reasons I serve the way I do in Acts 29, so that we can better care for our pastors in that network. In the last three weeks, I've had four conversations with men who are ready to tap out because of the weight of pastoral ministry. I preached at a church two weeks ago where a key leader in that church took his own life, a dear friend of the pastor's. And I came and I said, dude, I just want to make sure somebody's caring for you. I got a text last night from one of our guys here in North Carolina. One of his elders, two-year-old, was found dead in his home. One of his elders, two-year-old. And he said, Brian, please pray for me as I care for my friend, as I care for my church, as I grieve myself. Pastors carry weight. And one of the reasons I serve the way I do with Acts 29 is because I love pastors and I want to take care of them. So if you know a pastor, pray for them early and often. Now, all of this is part of the labor of pastors. These pastors labor among you, Paul says. And then he says, and are over you in the Lord. Now, again, we're brothers and sisters together. And at the same time, Elders are over you in some way. That's what Paul says here. Now, this word over you means to rule. It means to direct. means to be at the head of. And there's three kind of connotations to this word. They are to lead. They're to care or be concerned about. And they are to protect. All three of those are rooted in the metaphor of a shepherd. And in 1 Peter 5, which is going to be on the screen, we read the following. So I exhort the elders among you. This is Peter writing to a group of elders. And notice, he says the elders, plural. So there's a team, not one guy. It's a team. We call that plurality. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So they're to shepherd the flock. They're to lead it. Notice there again, it's the flock of God, not the flock of the pastors. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So there's this strange dance that elders are to, are to do where you shepherd and lead, but not in a domineering way. You're to be over, but not to be authoritarian. And then notice... Elders have a shepherd themselves, verse four, and when the chief shepherd appears, in other words, when the guy who owns all these sheep shows up again, those who lead well will receive the unfading crown of glory. But the best way for a pastor to be over the people is for him to be under Christ. Paul wants the church in Thessalonica and I believe here at Exodus to have elders who labor among us, who are over us in the Lord while they are under Christ and submitted to him. And then finally, Paul reminds them that pastors not only labor, not only are they over you, but he says that they admonish you. Now, this idea of admonishing you carries two ideas. It carries the idea of warning, carries the idea of teaching. Now, teaching is not like what I'm doing right now, though elders and pastors should be able to teach publicly and preach publicly. Some should. 
But here, pastors have to be able to sit across the table from people in their church and speak truth into their lives. This is more about what happens over coffee than what happens through a microphone. And pastors need to be able to sit across from others and admonish them. And it is exhausting. It's exhausting telling people the truth when you know they have no desire to do anything you're telling them. You talk to people and they, they, um, they've determined they want to do what they want to do. And honestly, they don't care what you or anyone else have to say. Man, you talk about planting seed and praying for rain. Like you can't do anything to change what's going on in their heart. So that's what faithful pastors do. They carry the emotional weight and toil of shepherding. They serve by leading the church under the lordship of, under the lordship of Christ. And they teach and warn those who are part of their flock so that they might grow in the grace of of Jesus. That's what pastors are to do. Now, Paul then speaks of what the church is to do in response to them. He says, we ask you brothers, so he's talking to the whole family, and he asks them to do two things. Now, he says to respect those who labor among you, and verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And again, I just want to acknowledge the awkwardness of what, this is, of what I'm doing here, Okay. First, the cultural winds are not blowing in the direction of respect for pastors, okay? Uh, there was a study done on uh, the top 15 people you trust. Top was nurses. 88% of people trust nurses. Pastors, 12%, just above car dealers, okay? So I get it, all right? I get it. Second, <clears throat> I want to acknowledge that there are pastors and leaders in the church who have taken advantage of passages like this to be served rather than to serve. And then finally, I just want to acknowledge that pastors are not perfect people. We're not perfect men. If you've been in the church long, you've been hurt by a pastor or a leader. I have too. But we believe this is God's word. And so let's see what God's word has to tell us about how we treat leaders. First, it says to respect those who labor among you. That word respect has the, carries with it the idea of knowing who they are and affirming their leadership. As a member, as a, as a part of this Exodus family, you should know who your elders are and you should affirm their leadership in your heart and life. You should respect them. And then he says to esteem them highly in love. Now we seem to swing between two extremes on this issue. Either we esteem, we, we esteem pastors way too highly and we create coloring books and we make people stand up when they come into a room and all kind of nonsense, or we don't esteem them at all. And we make jokes about them and expect them to laugh it off and we just treat them like they're nobody. Somewhere in the middle of that is what Paul calls them to do, to esteem them very highly in love. That's what he's calling them to do. And Paul calls the family of God to that middle ground of esteeming them very highly in love. Notice, because of their work, not because we deserve it, not because we deserve it, but because of the work we're called to. Now, I just want to give you four ways you can do that. <clears throat> First way is you can be patient with us. You can please be patient with us. Okay? We're broken people trying to do our best. Second, I just want to ask you to think and speak highly of us, particularly when you're speaking to others. Um, we'll talk about that the other side of that in a moment. But think and speak highly of us. Like, 
Our pastors carry emotional weight you don't understand. Our pastors are dealing with stuff you don't know about. And then on top of all that, we have to deal with our own issues that are going on in our lives. So please, think and speak highly of us. Third, be grateful for us. If it, for no other reason that the Holy Spirit has appointed us to this task, if, if for no other reason than that the Holy Spirit has appointed us as elders, be grateful. And then express that. Fourth, when needed, confront us. We are not perfect men. We don't think we are. In fact, there's probably not much you can say to confront us that we don't already know about and more. But confront us. If you have a concern, go to the elder. If you have a charge, the Bible says you're to have two or three witnesses and go to the elders, plural. So you have a con- if you have a concern, go to one of us. If you have a charge, go to all of us. And I promise you, it will be handled in a biblical manner. There are no yes men on this elder team. There are no yes men on this elder team. <laughs> I've lost three votes this year, okay? There are no yes men on this elder team. Most importantly, oh, if you have a charge, bring it to us. Don't bring it to the campfire. Don't bring it to the group text. Bring it to us. And then most importantly, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us. Exodus, this is what God's word says. Respect those who labor among you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I just want to, ask, I just want to show you what God's word says. And I want to encourage you to live in light of that. Then <clears throat> Paul turns from how the church is to treat leaders to how the church is to treat one another. Now, again, look at verse 14. He says, we urge you brothers, see, family. We urge you family. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, notice, again, he's talking about the church as family. We urge you, brothers and sisters. We urge you, family. And then he gives four things they are to do that are specified to the specific people. So you admonish the idle, you encourage the faint-hearted, you help the weak. You don't admonish the faint-hearted. You encourage the faint-hearted. You don't encourage the idle, hey, you're doing a great job being lazy. No, you admonish the idol. And so let's talk about what those four things are. First, admonish that word again. Notice he, he calls the whole family of God to do one of the things that pastors do. He calls them to admonish the idol that carries the idea of teaching and warning. Now, some of you are really put together to enjoy doing that. And it's quite possible that you're not the one to do it. If you have a really quick draw on admonishing others, but are not yet willing to receive admonishment from others, you probably should put your admonishment gun in the holster. Now, we do need to admonish the idle, though. And idle people are those who are uh, lazy, who are not working, who are not serving in a, in a way that was appropriate for the body of Christ here in Thessalonica. It was an offense in this community for them to be idle. Second, we're to encourage the faint-hearted. 
Now, those who are faint-hearted are sad, they're torn down. These were people who were suffering for their faith. They probably lost friends and family members to, to, uh, to being killed as martyrs. They were grieving, they were tired, they were faint-hearted, and they needed to be encouraged. The word encourage means to put courage into. It means we come alongside the faint-hearted and say, God is good, and his gospel is true. And we put courage into people who are faint-hearted. That's what he calls us as a family to do. And then he calls us to help the weak. It assumes there were weak people around the church and in the church who needed help. And then it assumed that there were strong, powerful people who would lay down their strength and power to serve those who were weak. He calls them as a family to help one another for the strong and powerful to help the weak. And then he says, be patient with them all. That's a really important capstone on those other three things. Because so often when you're admonishing the idle and passive and those, that, that type of person, when you're admonishing them, you can get really impatient. And when you're encouraging the faint-hearted and they just want to stay in their little pool of faint-heartedness, you can get really impatient. And sometimes when you're trying to help the weak and they don't seem to want to move forward in any way, you can get really impatient. And Paul says, be patient with them. And what so often can happen is we begin to measure others by our abilities. And what we always do is we see others' failure to measure up to what we have attained. And we miss altogether the way they have grown in grace in ways that we have not. And then we totally miss the reality that none of us measure up to Jesus. And if God can be patient with us, we are to be patient with others. That's what he says. He's to be, be patient with them all. And then he turns to uh, not just how we relate in the church, but how we relate to others about our relationships outside. Look at verse 15. He says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So he calls them to a family of watchfulness. See that. See that no one does what he's about to say. That no one repays anyone evil for evil. So we're to watch out for this urge towards vengeance in one another. We're to watch out for that. Here in this this context, um, the church had been suffering for their faith it may be that some of the young bucks in the church wanted to go take it out on somebody, that they wanted to go return evil for evil. And Paul says, hey, see to it that no one does that, but seek to do good to one another in the family and to those who are outside the family. This is what Paul is calling us to do as the family of God in the way we treat our leaders and in the way we treat one another. Now, typically in sermons, I end it with like, this is how we apply it. I feel like this whole thing is application. This whole thing is what we are to do in light of being part of the family of God. But I just want to narrow that down to one kind of final idea, and that's this. How we live as the family of God demonstrates what we declare about our Father. 
How we live as the family of God demonstrates what we declare about our Father. There is something spectacularly important about the way we live as the family of God in the world. What we demonstrate with our living is often so much louder than what we declare with our words. What we demonstrate with our living is so much louder than what we declare with our words. And so as the family of God, how we demonstrate that, how we live demonstrates what we declare about our Father. And so let's think about our Father for a moment. Our Father loved us and made us for himself. And though he made us for himself to enjoy him and all of his good gifts, we rebelled against him to try to find life where it will not be found. We ran from him rather than to him. And in doing that, we rebelled against him. We assaulted his character. We denied his word. And we ran as fast as we could to try to find life all kinds of other places. And this God that we rebelled against, our father, did not abandon us. He did not reject us, but rather he demonstrated his love for us by sending Jesus, our brother, to live the life we should have lived, to die a death in our place, to be buried and to rise from the grave, victorious over sin and death, so that those who had rebelled against our father could repent and return to our brother to find forgiveness to find life, to find love, to find the acceptance that can only come by faith in Jesus Christ. And in our repenting of sin and returning to Jesus, we're made family. And we're not made family because we deserve it. We're not made family because we've earned it. We're not made family because we're better than somebody else. We're made family by grace through faith in our brother who was sent by our father. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit seals us in his family until the day of redemption. And how we live demonstrates what we declare about the gospel. And we're called to live together as a family in a way that demonstrates this. So, What are we declaring in our demonstration? So are we properly esteeming those who lead in our church as a gift from the Lord? They're my pastors too. Am I properly esteeming them as a gift from the Lord? Are we admonishing the idol? Or are we letting people live in cheap grace? There's there's this whole idea around contemporary American Christianity that We just kind of let people be where they are instead of admonishing them. No, no, no. God called you to so much more and and has freed you for so much more. Are we encouraging the faint-hearted? Are we loading them up with shame? And so often when we seek to comfort the faint-hearted, we end up loading them with shame. People open up to us about what they feel and we say things, really silly things like, well, you shouldn't feel that. Well, too late. I'm feeling it. So how do we come around them and encourage the faint-hearted in such a way that they see that God is good, that God is glorious, that God is great? 
Are we helping the weak? Or have we become a people who value power more than weakness? In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, made himself a man, taking on the form of a servant. So Jesus laid down his power at some level to serve us when we were weak. That's our model for helping the weak. Not to lord power over them, but to lay down power to serve. And then are we being patient? Or are we frustrated that people don't change as fast as we would like? It's so easy. It's so easy to grow impatient. God calls us as a family to be patient with one another. Knowing that everyone, everyone you encounter is dealing with things you don't know about. Everyone you encounter is dealing with hurt and pain that you don't know about. Everyone you encounter is dealing with struggle and hardship that none of us know about. And so we need to be patient. And our patience with them is a tiny reflection of God's patience with us. Like, if the God we've rebelled against countless times can be patient with me, how much more patient can we be with one another? How we live as the family of God demonstrates what we declare about our Father. And my hope is that we as a church would be devoted to doing this. That we would live as the family of God together. Now, many of us spent time around a, a table this week. We had, had good food and good, hopefully good conversation. Remember things we were grateful for. Every week, we observe what's called the Lord's table. Now, please, I know normally this is the time you start putting your Bibles away. This is the only time I'm going to say it. Just, just, just hang with me for just a minute because it's important. Every week, we observe what's called the Lord's table where Jesus, Jesus has prepared a table for us his body and his blood. That This bread reminds us of his body. The cup reminds us of his blood. Jesus has prepared a table and says to all who hope in him, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. He reminds us you don't deserve to be here. You, you, don't, you haven't earned a ticket to be here. You haven't paid to come to this, but you, you are welcome because I gave my body and blood for you. That's, that's the gospel we declare, and that's the kind of gospel we're to demonstrate in our lives, where we show forgiveness and kindness and grace, where we extend that to others. And all, all that is required for us to come to the table is an acknowledgement of our own sin, repentance from sin, faith in Jesus, and we have access to Jesus' hospitality. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you're part of the family of God, and at this table, Jesus welcomes you to sit at his table. Well, you'll stand, but you get the point. He welcomes you to the table to experience his hospitality. And how we live as the family demonstrates what we declare in that moment. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your kindness to us and for your love for us, thank you that you've called us family. 
that you've made us your own. It's staggering to think about that. I pray that you would, um, I pray that you would give us hearts to, to love you and walk with you. I pray that you would show us how to live as family together, that we would treat one another well, uh, that we would treat our leaders in, in ways that are consistent with your word. Um, and Lord, that we'd really be patient with one another. We'd be patient with one another, that we would do the end of verse 13, that we'd be at peace among ourselves. I pray that that would be so. We thank you, Jesus, our brother, for dying in our place. Thank you, God, the Father, for loving rebellious children. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing us in the family. We're so grateful for your goodness and your gospel. I pray that as we celebrate it now through communion and through song, that we would rejoice together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.